Welcome to Everyday Buddhism, making every day better by applying the proven tools found in Buddhist concepts. Welcome to episode 21 of Everyday Buddhism, making every day better. I'm excited to share the second in a series of episodes where I will talk with the Buddhist teachers that not only educated me in the Dharma, but shaped my life for the better. One of my first teachers said, everyone is your teacher because everyone is a Buddha. That is true, but there are some teachers who come into your life and have major influences on you. In the last episode, I had a conversation with my sensei, Reverend Koyo Kabose, and today I'm talking with Frank Howard, who along with his wife Gretchen were my first in-person mentors in Buddhism and enabled my initial refuge and teaching with Lama Drupa and Sonam Jorpal Rinpoche and teachings by many other wonderful teachers, including his eminence, Garchen Rinpoche, and Kempo Sherab Odzer. If not for Frank Gretchen in the center and the guidance they offered me, I wouldn't have had the experience of being in the presence of these wonderful Tibetan teachers who radiated the wisdom and compassion of Buddha nature like the sun. I will offer a brief introduction, but I will also put his full Frank's full biography on my website. Frank is a local attorney and a director and teacher of the White Lotus Buddhist Center, Rochester's Tibetan Buddhist Temple. He has studied and practiced Buddhism since his early 20s, but actually began formal training at the Rochester Zen Center in 1971 under the direction of Roshi Philip Kaplow. In January of 1981, he and his wife's made a pilgrimage to the Buddhist holy sites in India and Nepal. And then in 1985, after nearly 15 years of attending Zen meditation retreats, Frank met a Tibetan Lama, Kenshin Kancha Gyaltsen, and had studied and practiced within the Tibetan tra tradition since that time. It, it seemed to me he sort of fell in love at that time with Tibetan teachers and Tibetan teachings. And it, he sure does radiate that faith in Tibetan Buddhism and Buddhism in general. His knowledge and letters about, his knowledge and understanding about uh, Tibet and Tibetan Buddhism and Buddhism in general have appeared in as publications in the Wall Street Journal, the Atlantic Monthly, Rochester City News, the Rochester Democrat and Chronicle, and the magazines Shambhala Sun and Snow Lion Publications. He actually gave a series of public talks at SUNY Buffalo and was interviewed for The Mystical Arts of Tibet, a video produced by SUNY Buffalo, concurrent with the visit of His Holiness the Dalai Lama in 2006. Frank continues to speak at various venues on topics concerning Tibetan, Tibetan Buddhism. Frank's taken empowerments and teachings from many excellent teachers, including the Dalai Lama, Chetsang Rinpoche, and many others. Frank and Gretchen have two daughters, 
Megan and Tracy, who many of us watched grow up while at the center. Uh, and Megan and Tracy are now graduates of Harvard and Columbia Colleges, respectively. Tracy is uh, in a PhD program at Columbia University in Tibetan literature, and Megan is in a PhD program at the University of California, Berkeley, in Tibetan Buddhist history. Both are fluent in classical and colloquial Tibetan and conversant in Mandarin. Additionally, Megan knows Sanskrit and studied Japanese. You'll find more about them in Frank's bio on my website as well. So I'm thrilled to have Frank on the podcast. I know you'll find his deep knowledge, faith, wonderful sense of humor, and contagious giggle a joy to listen to. So now to the recording. Well, hello, Frank Howard, and thank you for joining Everyday Buddhism. Uh, we're thrilled to have you here. Uh, it's I think it's going to be exciting because um, other than the a recent episode I have with uh, Pakchap Rinpoche and Eric Solomon when they were promoting their book, Radically Happy, A User's Guide to the Mind. Um, I have not touched too I've not touched uh, Tibetan Buddhism much at all, although it does uh, seep out through what I talk about in how I teach, because it's where I was sort of, where I had my comeuppance, I guess, if you will. So, <laughs> so uh, well, I'm, thank you. But I, I really wanted to have an expert in Tibetan Buddhism on, so that's you. <laughs> no, you, you uh, flatter me, but I'm happy to be here. We've had a long friendship. Yes, yes, we have. Um, haven't seen you enough lately, but uh, uh, I guess when you have a good friendship, it doesn't much matter if years go by, right? <laughs> yes, that's right. That's right. So you have a long, interesting history with Buddhism, and um, I explained it in my intro about your background, a little bit about you know, your background with, with different forms of Buddhism, your your background in your family, and so forth. But, you know, I wanted to start by talking about your Zen to Tibetan um, transformance back in the early days, right? Um, uh-huh, what, yes. Yeah, and, and you know, it, it's, um, I think a lot of people would be interested in that because I think most of my podcast, many of my podcast listeners are attracted to the podcast from uh, a secular Buddhist point of view, you know, the sort of the buzz term secular Buddhism because of Stephen Batchelor. But I, but I also have, you know, people who come from Tibetan Buddhism because I've attracted some listeners from that book I promote promoted with uh, for Shambhala. And so there's, Mm -hmm. I have a wide range. I don't think there's too many Zen, um, but there are some of that. So what I was interested in is what, you know, what was the magic what what magic happened when you sort of went from practicing for what was it 10 15 years in the zen tradition to then all yeah, all just, of a sudden yeah. falling in love right <laughs> yeah so tell me yeah yeah it's i i know of course these things are you know karmic and one person's experience isn't really necessarily a model for anybody else's or um, but, you know, my original attraction to, to Buddhism was sort of coming out of a, you know, a late teenage um, existential crisis. Uh, you know, I was just so struck by the fact that we were all going to die. And uh, that seemed terrifying to me. Um, but it was such a such a, a place of no exit, because, you know, if you're really, really 
uh, terrified of death, you can't even get out by, you know, committing suicide. <laughs> right. And I, <laughs> and I looked around, I just felt like there was no exit that I was trapped. And I looked around and everybody seemed not to be caring about this. And it all seemed rather dreamlike to me. And uh, so those were the things that I was wrestling with. And I entered into uh, two or three years of very eclectic kind of reading all over the place, you know, talking to priests and, and different things, trying to find some answers to my questions. And when I came across, you know, the Buddha's first noble truth, I, I, I felt like it was being, you know, like he was speaking to me directly. So I thought, oh, my goodness, maybe there are some answers here. So I had this interest. And then it was back in, you know, this is like 19... In the late 60s that I was wrestling with this, and it wasn't until um, maybe 1970, 1971, somewhere in there, that, um, you know, there wasn't much going on in the country in terms of, you know, what we might call Western Buddhism. I'm sure there were some ethnic communities that had Dharma centers and temples and that, but I didn't have any contact with that. And I, I stumbled across the three pillars of Zen, you know, in my reading. Right. And for the first time felt confident that there was actually something you could do. My, my view had been that, you know, we were just sort of, we just were dealt a deck of cards and that was too bad. It was kind of fatalistic. You, you know, nothing you could really do about it, but it was, um, it, it was reading the three pillars of Zen that, that gave me confidence that, you know, you actually can train the mind, although I never thought about it in those terms. So, at that time, I think there was the Rochester Zen Center. There was the San Francisco Zen Center. I think uh, Edo Roshi was opening up the New York Zendo, I think it was called, in Manhattan, and it would in just a little bit. And the L.A. Zen Center hadn't opened yet. Um, but I was attracted to the Rochester Zen Center. And um, my wife and I eventually became members there, moved to Rochester in about 1975, and, um, you know, became part of the community, participating in the Sashin, and then eventually were on staff there for maybe three years. Um, at the end of that time, we wanted to have a family and, the you know, $50 a month room and board <laughs> wasn't going to cut it. So we, we um, moved uh, back to Minneapolis where we had been raised and our first child was born. But then eventually we moved back to Rochester because, um, you know, this is where most of our friends were. And we thought of, you know, just having the temple down the block sort of thing and leading kind of an ordinary middle class life. And so we were there, uh, members of the Zen Center, until 1985. And in 1985, a uh, Kempo, Kenshin Konsol Gyaltsen, came to Rochester and we heard that he was coming and we just went to a very modest, he was at some sort of a Tai Chi center on uh, South Clinton Avenue. And um, we went and turns out we did a Chen Sig empowerment of Alakiteshvara uh, with him. And then the following year, again, unexpected and uninvited, a Drikun Lama, Ayan Rinpoche, uh, came to Rochester. And... Uh, lo and behold, there was one a fellow who had been kind of an, uh, you know, one of the officials at the uh, Rochester Zen Center, Fred uh, Epstein, uh, Epsteiner, I think is his name. Terrible, I've forgotten his name. <laughs> um, and he had been at the Zen Center and then decided to do a pilgrimage while 
still a member of the Zen Center. He was going to go to uh, India and then uh, Japan, uh, saving the best for last, he thought. But he in India, he happened to meet uh, a Tibetan Lama, a Nyingma Lama, a layman named uh, Zon, Zonar Rinpoche. And Freddie ended up doing uh, you know, a retreat with him. Then I don't think he went to Japan, came back to Rochester. And you know, he had a little meditation group going on in his house. He was then moving to Florida and asked if my wife and I if we would just sort of continue the little meditation group that he had going. Um, and I said, sure. And so we were there. And then it was two weeks later that Ayn Rinpoche came to town. Wow. And he was preceded by a Western nun. Um, and I invited her to this little meditation group. And she gave a little talk. And lo and behold, there was all this kind of spontaneous interest of uh, uh, ballooning. And then when Ayn Rinpoche came to town, we had like, you know, a hundred people or something who came for initial teaching. Then he went to Toronto. Then he came back two weeks later and gave uh, uh, a poa lung, you know, uh, the oral transmission of one of these tantric teachings. And um, there was so much spontaneous interest that a little group was formed and it was called the Drikun Kagyu Enlightenment Institute. And for me, it was it was rather remarkable. It was very emotional, not so much him personally, but I had this sense that the Mahayana teachings were coming to the West. That was the sense that I had of it. Mm-hmm. And it was very odd because I never felt any connection to Tibetan Buddhism at all. Um, you know, looking back on it, it was kind of funny because living in the staff at the Zen Center, you know, you had a little room that you lived in. My wife and I lived in this little room. And uh, the Zen Center's practice at that time, I don't know what it's like now, but very much discouraged reading. You know, I was working on koans and you weren't supposed to be reading. And I was sneaking books (laughs) (laughs) in my bedroom. So I was reading Lama Govinda, The Way of the White Cloud. I was reading The Life of Milarepa. And it never occurred to me that I had any interest in Tibetan Buddhism at all. (laughs) But nonetheless, when this Tibetan Lama came to town, uh, it was very emotional for me before he was coming. I, I, I kept having dreams and all sorts of, you know, funny things. Uh, so anyway, that's how it happened. It was completely unexpected. We were still members of the Rochester Zen Center at that time. And for us, we felt like, um, my wife and I, I think, you know, it's like your path kind of appeared for you. Yeah. And there was something nice about it because it wasn't, you know, manipulated in the sense of me trying to, my ego trying to, to uh, direct (laughs) my own spiritual development. It hit me despite myself. Yeah, I think think you hit on something that despite yourself, I think is a very, in my life, is a very prevalent concept, right? Um, uh, The the things that that have happened to me in directing my spiritual path one way or the other has has almost, when I look back to each and every one of them, it's always been in spite of myself, you know? (laughs) And so I typically, and I look at this, I I typically have my mind set on one thing and then this (laughs) other thing pops up and and sort of kidnaps me, right? (laughs) Um, Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And consequently, I've had without, you know, without any kind of reason for it. I can't take any credit. Um, but I've had this natural kind of faith. Um, and I think that's very helpful because Tibetan Buddhism, with its vast array of methods and meditations right. and practices, you can fall into kind of a mechanistic kind of view. 
that I just, you know, crank uh, on one side of this uh, uh, this practice box. And look, I'm going to come out the other side as a Buddha. And uh, and my ego, aren't I wonderful? And then people can bow down to me and, you know, all of those kinds of delusions. Um, and yet that faith brings, a, a, first of all, a kind of renunciation. You're just dropping all your machinations, although they're still there, of course. Right. But at least the back of them has been broken, and you you can see that this is kind of a falsity. All our scheming, all our right. <laughs> all our trying to trying to appear one way and acting another, all of that malarkey suddenly becomes visible to you. But at the same time, there's some sort of you know there there is there's something certainly non conceptual, but there's also something unbidden. You know, there, there's there's something. There's something that's that's deeper than our uh, stated reasons to ourselves. Yeah. Now, now, when you first started telling the story, and yet, in, indeed, I'm going to go back to that first part. But the other things that you added on sort of sort of um, um, accentuate what I'm going to say here is when you first started telling the story, you you uh, hinted at that it was a karmic condition right um yeah and then you know you sort you sort of talk about like stumbling into these things happening you know in in spite of yourself and then having a kind of faith not that not a developed faith that you tried to develop it it just was it was natural right um which almost sounds karmic too now since i think a good 50 percent of my audience probably doesn't believe in that kind of thing (laughs) Yes. You know what I'm saying? That's exactly, yes. you know, it's it's my interest here is is bringing this this stuff up. Um, you know, I think it's rare in today's world where you can talk about this stuff without having some sort of taking some sort of sides or something. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, um, yes. And then starting to be defensive and my way is better than your way and all this stuff. Um, right. And I, I thought it would... What do you, how do you, how would you address an audience that you think is uh, people who think you think are primarily secular? And I think you probably get them in your center as well. Um, Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I think the key thing when, when I say faith, you know, it, it, that's an English word and it has all sorts of English antecedents and meaning to it. We usually think of it in a theistic way. Right. Where in the end, you have to believe in something that really can't be proven, can't be really believed in either. But, you you know, the great figure is the one that believes in you know, sort of impossibilities or something. But I'm told, I, I don't know Sanskrit, my daughter does. And, and I'm told that the, the word for faith in Buddhism is, is shraddha. And uh, don't, don't quote me on the pronunciation. Yeah. <laughs> but I'm told that it, it's more akin to confidence. Oh, yes. In other words, Dalai Dalai Lama has said, for instance, that it's not blind faith. You know, it's it's in the Buddha himself is that that, that sutra to the Kalamas is you know right. quoted again and again. You know, do not believe it because I say it. Don't believe it because right. a holy man told you that, or because it's in a sacred book, or because your elders. Only when you test it, you know, with your own reason and experience, and then if it tends to benefit yourself and others, then adopt it. So. Nothing happens without confidence. You know, we don't go into the room and switch on the light switch, except for the fact that we have confidence that it's going to work. And that confidence is reason. We've done it before. Uh, an electrician told us it's going to work now. Uh, I mean, I sometimes think of like the faith that we naturally have, say, in like Albert Einstein. I can't tell you 
really anything. Don't give me a quiz on relativity. <laughs> but I really do have confidence that he did something that was valid and something that was um, useful. Right. And based on that, you know, there's a whole lot of things that I, we, we, we have to have faith in something. Even the atheists have faith in that there's nothing to have faith in, I guess. But they have faith in that. We can't get away from needing to have faith. You know, you can't have a relationship without taking a risk, sticking your neck out. We, we have, you know, we have faith all the time. So for, I feel very fortunate. I think it was a karmic result. And I, you know, again, who knows how these things happen. But that's been a very sustaining thing for me with all the ups and downs and, uh, and scandals and whatever, you know, whatever's out there. There's still this basic faith in what the Buddha said that we all have Buddha nature and that it can be developed just like he did. I, I have faith that he wasn't drunk, he wasn't mistaken, he wasn't crazy, he wasn't aggrandizing, all of those things. But for people who don't have faith, anybody who finds themselves with even a curiosity or even an opposition to Buddhism actually has <laughs> a craving, enough faith yeah. <laughs> for something to happen. They have enough contact with it because, you know, the opposite of... Um, of belief is not disbelief, is basically apathy. You know, right. the ordinary being is just not thinking about these things at all until there's some huge crisis in their life, and then it's like too late. So, for instance, the um, this man who was known for the political dark arts, you know, Lee Atwater, he oh, was the yes. um, uh, campaign <laughs> manager for George W. Bush right. when he was first running for president. And he had done all these negative things as a as a campaigner, you know, and then suddenly he got a brain tumor. He was like 46 years old, something like that. And it was so sad to me. He assigned his staff to go out and investigate all these different religions because suddenly, I mean, I, I hope it worked for him, but he, he was suddenly fearful of death and realizing the impermanence of life. But, you know, you can't assign other people to do that for you. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and, and so most people are like that. We're not thinking about it, you know? Right. Um, and yet, so for people who are secular, you know, I just invite, just put your foot in the water, start doing some of these practices, see the effect on your mind. Like the Dalai Lama says, for instance, when you're angry, look in the mirror, look, no one likes you. You look like a demon. Your face is bright red. Everyone avoids you at the office, <laughs> even though you don't say anything. <laughs> right. And he said, rather, the teaching is patience is like the antidote to anger. And you can practice patience and see how you feel, if you feel better or whatever. And it's a gradual path. A faith is the ability to keep at it consistently. Because what happens is, you know, even though you know, you, okay, I think patience is the antidote to anger. But when the anger comes up, it's so powerful, you don't even think about patience. Yeah, right. And so eventually, eventually you realize, oh, I'm supposed to be doing patience. And then you try. And what happens? You know, <laughs> you, you maybe aren't killing anyone anymore, but you're still shouting at them <laughs> and right. you're still thinking, I want you to die. <laughs> Eventually it's a gradual path. It gets better step by step, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, that confidence word, it's the same thing in, uh, um, in Shin Buddhism. I'm not, yes. uh, uh, that the word is Shinjen. Um, and, and it, it has been mistranslated. I don't know if you know of Dr. Um, um, Doctor. But not now, now I've forgotten his name, and I it's ridiculous. Yeah, right. But anyway, the 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 word Shinjen um, is is 
t- is t- typically mistranslated, I think, as as faith, and then therefore they think the the Shin religion is is just like a a sort of a Christian religion, you know, and 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 right. because of and and much of the the reasoning for people like um, having that negative reaction and pushing it away is from a mistranslation. So that's why it's very cool that there's people like your daughters who do what they do, right? Um, because yeah. you, that it's the somebody who can read the 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 original text can was set us straight. But the he. he uh, that word is, is is said to be really confidence as well, and um, uh huh, interesting, yeah, yeah same yeah. kind of thing, and 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 that's that's the more the more real uh, translation, and I think I think for my and this is going to lead to another question to you, but from my point of view, in and this goes back to that that things find us instead of we looking for them. Um, is 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 whenever you put one foot in front of the other or take one step towards something that you know will you think will make you better or alleviate fear or what or make you a better person for other people or or whatever the thing and if you continue on that path you are then led to the thing that maybe you don't know what it is, right? <laughs> and that can be karma. Yeah. I mean, that can be karma, or or I don't know if if people don't believe in karma, I don't know how they would how they would rationalize that. But I uh, or maybe it is just the karma of action and reaction. If you keep going, uh, inertia takes over. Uh, inertia doesn't take over. I mean, momentum takes over, right? <laughs> is it? Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, yeah. It could be that. It's such a. It- yeah, it's such a dicey thing, really, because, again, you have to have confidence to keep going. And yet there are ups and downs. So, for instance, I think actually I think it's from um, a Pure Land school in China where they, they talk about, uh, you know, Amitabha's compassion. I mean, normally the smallest stone, the smallest impurity will sink to the bottom of the ocean. <laughs> but because of Amitabha's compassion, you've got a big boat. And so you can put a big giant uh, boulder on that boat and it won't sink. But yet at the same time, you have to put up a sail (laughs) to catch the wind. So you have to do something. But at the same time, there has to be that underlying, you know, deep confidence. Because without that, we're always going in one direction, then another direction, back and forth. There's no consistency. There's no training of the mind. Um, right, and then that's in the Pure Land schools, and in in uh, uh, Jodo Shinsu, they it's it, they talk about other power, and I'm sure you're familiar with that. And um, mm-hmm. the other power, uh, most people think that you're giving yourself oh over to other power, some like great dualistic deity, right? Um, yeah, right. But because anything like this is Buddhism, there is no dualistic deity. I mean, you can't, you, you, right. you can't think of it that way. Um, so, but the, the, my sensei always says you, you, it takes, it takes self power to reach other power. And that's the, pu- yeah. that's the putting the sail up, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. I'll give you a personal example. I mean, it made me realize that there was other power going on despite everything I was aware of. So uh, when we first were wanting to move from Minneapolis where we were to Rochester, New York, to be close to the Rochester Zen Center, at that time, the Zen Center was having all these kind of ex-hippie types flood in. <laughs> and there was no room. And so they had this this organizational idea. Why don't we have 
affiliate groups around the country. And so there was an affiliate group in Madison, Wisconsin, and they told us to move there instead of coming to Rochester. So we did. But of course, Madison, Wisconsin, what a place to try to get a job. You know, it's full of graduate students and all these um, college types hanging around because they like Madison. So, you know, I had real trouble getting work. I was working in retail shops as clerks and that. And the bottom just fell out of us uh, economically. Mm -hmm. Um, And I was very much in kind of a self-power kind of guy. You know, I was just thinking I was going to do all this meditation, gee, all these wonderful things that I was going to do, you know, all of this. And everything was falling apart. And I was like in despair. And one day I took my lunch break from the retail shop where I was selling, you know, third world stuff. (laughs) And and I went to the the University of Wisconsin uh, Art Museum where they had some Buddha figures. And I was just looking at the Buddha figures, just idling away my time. And suddenly it welled up from within me. I looked at that Buddha figure and I said, please help me. <laughs> and I started crying. <laughs> I hear it. And in, an, and in an instant, all my pain went away. And I was just dumbfounded because my conceptual framework that I had was, you know, you just meditate and meditate and meditate and meditate. There wasn't really a devotional aspect to this at all. And so I was really kind of stunned. And from what you said, as far as putting up the sale, I mean, it makes me think on even in the highest teaching, so to speak, of Tibetan Buddhism, you know, like, you know, guru yoga, it's something that's a huge problem usually for Western Buddhists, let alone secular types. Right. Uh, But the whole point of the outer Lama, that, that exists in the Vajrayana, not the other Buddhist schools. You know, normally the teacher is someone who's a little bit farther down the path than you, mm-hmm. you know, a good friend that you can rely on. But in the Vajrayana, yes, it can be like that too, but it can be you can consider your teacher to be a Buddha. It's a very fierce kind of practice. Uh, but nonetheless, the whole point of the outer Lama or guru is to bring you to your inner guru. It's, it's not some sort of blind faith or adulation or any of those kinds of things. You know, all of Buddhism training the mind. Yeah, and that was that was my sort of, I was leading in the next two questions, and the next two questions, one of them was, tell me more about the guru concept, because I, I'm actually hitting off, ticking off areas that I've heard complaints about, you know, yeah. about uh, the for, Tibetan Buddhism, and not all of, and that's another thing maybe you can touch on, I think this is, that's probably the best way to start, is Tibetan Buddhism is not necessarily all Vajrayana. It's not all tantric and 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 Correct. and uh, shamanistic from the Bon uh, religion. And you know, people have that misconception. Right. And I get that. Right. You walk into right. a Tibetan temple if you've never been to one, especially if you're coming from some place that's like a Zen. Uh, the Zen yes. Center or something. I know, I know the feeling. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I mean, the, so. just the aesthetics can knock you on your rear end, uh, so, right? You, you, my first, <laughs> my my second Vajrayana retreat was at Mount Baldy Zen Center. The uh, I think it was Sasaki Roshi there. He, you know, he was taking a month off, and so they rented their Zen Center to uh, Lama Tarchin <laughs> and. Uh, they kept like three little novice monks, American novice monks up there just to keep 
in, you know, keep the place going right. while we filled up. So Lama Tarchin shows up with his U-Haul truck. And I'm used to Zen, you know, you have your cushion. Right. And that's about <laughs> it. In the, in, the, in, the, in, the, in the shrine room during the retreats, a little tiny Manjushri statue. That's about <laughs> that's it. That's right. <laughs> and Lama Tarchin shows up with a U-Haul that's full of stuff, you know. <laughs> and he took this, this Zendo, which was just in Sasaki Roshi especially, very, very severe, I call it, kind of Japanese aesthetic. I mean, no... Nothing, just bare. <laughs> and Lama Tarshan fills up the shrine room with, you know, like, you know, the Tonkas, these paintings of like, a, you know, a female Buddha who's naked <laughs> and is yeah. dancing on someone's on a corpse and she's got flames for hair and all this kind of stuff. So he fills up this. I'm up there early helping him set up. And at one point I saw one of these Zen novices looking in the window of his Zendo and looking at all these bizarre things on the wall. And because I was from Zen, I knew what was going through his mind. And so I walked up behind him and he turned around and he looked at me and he said, this is really weird. <laughs> <laughs> and somebody once upon a time said that Tibetan Buddhism appears to be Mexican Catholicism on LSD. Yeah. And, <laughs> and that's, and that's it, you know, and I think, you know, it's very hard to explain. I mean, it's, it's, it, it, takes, it takes a long time to get to an understanding of it. So it's, it's, yeah. it's very reasonable for people to walk into a, a, a Tibetan temple, center, whatever, and, and feel as if that, oh, no, no, this is not for me. This is just absolutely. Right. And then when they hear about guru yoga, oh, then it's, I mean, all are, yeah. all are actually good sense comes up, but all our hesitations, because there are so many, I mean, the, the, the religious world has been full of charlatans from day one. And <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and, and that's, and see, those two things go together. It's that, uh, the, 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 the difference of all the, the aesthetics, the guru stuff, the chanting stuff, the bell ringing, the conch blowing, right. <laughs> it's, it's just, it's just a little, it's too weird, really. I mean, it's too weird. I know. I know. Cause that was my reaction. <laughs> yeah. I was Mr. Skeptical mind, scientific mind. Then somehow I got involved in Zen. Well, that was okay. Cause you know, <laughs> and, and yeah. the next thing I knew I'm in the midst of all these crazy people. So, so, <laughs> so this is where you have to jump off and explain to our <laughs> listeners what the heck. <laughs> what is all that stuff? Right. <laughs> I know this is I know this is something that we can't do in in the length of a podcast but um I know Frank that you are capable of sort of cutting to the chase and saying so what are the images why do we have them what, right. what is the guru right. and why is that still mahayana buddhism really right yeah, yeah. okay Be, yeah yeah because uh, again the advantage First of all, Tibetan Buddhism is something of a misnomer because, I mean, yes, there's a Tibetan flavor there and, and you can't deny the Tibetan contribution. But if you read, um, you know, say the, um, you know, the, the commentaries on the, like the Avatamska or the Huayan Sutra by those great Chinese masters, Qi Yi and all these people in medieval China. Right. You know, my daughter, for instance, spent a summer in Taiwan in a, in a monastery. And the teachings they were giving there were just the same as Tibetan Buddhism. Um, so it's just that as Americans, it, Buddhism is still pioneering here. And especially like, say, the Rochester Zen Center, most of the Western Zen teachers are descendants of the Samboko Dan, 
which was a different organization, you know, founded by Yasutani Roshi in Japan in the late 1940s, I believe. And, um, you know, I, I read somewhere there's there's wonderful works done by um, Robert Scharf at Berkeley on uh, uh, on the Samboko John. It means the three treasures organization, I think. I don't know Japanese. At any rate, we've got a little sliver of this. When I went to Japan, for instance, you know, the Zen shrines, the Zen altars are, are just they look like a Tibetan altar. They're just right. loaded with offerings and symbolism and all. All these are just helps. You know, they're, they're just helps. And it makes sense to me that it initially comes to America like it did to China or Tibet. You know, the initial coming of Dharma to a land, um, kind of people pick up on it for one reason or another. I'm told in China it was the aristocrats. Somehow it fed something, some literary nature, nature or something that they, that they were attracted to. And so to an America. So uh, Edward Conze, though, this man who first translated the Perfection of Wisdom Sutras, uh, he was he, he was a professor at Berkeley at one point, and he said, you know, he would always end his lectures on the perfection of wisdom with uh, some sort of uh, nod to try to pacify his American students <laughs> in their democratic, hedonistic, feministic, anti-intellectual, <laughs> <laughs> and I don't know what else, you know, tendencies. Um, but in the end, I would always relent and tell them that it was not so much important that the Buddha uh, appeal to them, but that they appeal to Lord Buddha. <laughs> so <laughs> Tibet is this, yes, this broad, many, many practices. Buddhism came to Tibet 1,500 years after the Buddha had passed away and at the peak of Indian cultural development. And it's, it's just a remarkable thing. It took centuries for it to be transmitted and the Tibetans, you know, a very different culture. They were like warlike. You know, they yes. were like, we think of Genghis Khan. They <laughs> conquered the capital of China, Xi'an. Right. And uh, all sorts of stuff going on. But they transmitted. So they, they have very helpful, I believe, um, sort of conceptual frameworks and classifications of the teachings, which have been very helpful to me. And they said, basically, that there's a whole category of teachings that are self-liberation, and the basic vow there is the basic refuge vow is do no harm, stop harming. Right. And then that will take you to a very, very high state, it said. You know, literally people can walk through walls. I mean, you know, the arhats, the conquerors, no more suffering. But it said at some point you can rest in non-suffering literally for eons. But at some point a Buddha appears in your mind and you realize that all the other suffering beings are still out there. So you begin to practice the Mahayana. So for the Tibetans, the Mahayana is this path of perfections, this what the Dalai Lama teaches publicly, um, you know, this vast compassion, love and compassion that leads you to bodhicitta, you know, wanting to, to liberate others and to, and to take on that, that burden through the practices and the training of the mind. So that's the ordinary, we call it Mahayana, the extraordinary is called Vajrayana, Tantrayana, Mantrayana. Mm -hmm. It is not separate in motivation. And if it is, it's not it. Mm. The motivation is exactly the same. It differs only in method. And the difference is in both self-liberation and um, the ordinary conventional Mahayana, we're practicing the path of causes. We believe that if you practice patience, there'll be you know, a patient mind will result 
uh, thoroughly trained mind will result. If we practice all these things and we've practiced the causes, we're going to get the results down the line. But in the Vajrayana, they reverse it. And so because Buddha said we have Buddha nature, and we are Buddhas right now, we just haven't recognized it, then we can practice, imagine ourselves to be a Buddha right now. We're practicing the result. So it's the resultant path. That's why it requires faith, too, Mm -hmm. because Mm -hmm. to practice considering all your fellow practitioners as highly evolved bodhisattvas, that's hard to do. (laughs) You know, one of the down, one of the root downfalls of the tantric path is I think it's the 13th vow. If you consider a female to be an ordinary human being, you have tarnished your tantric vow. Um, This is very hard practice, but it has to come out of the renunciation, do no harm, and then it has to come out of the vast view of trying to benefit all, all beings. And that's where the challenge comes. So we had at the Dharma Center, for instance, a really wonderful young Lama who's studying at Emory right now, uh, Rangel Yeshe. And he was teaching uh, loving kindness and compassion. And in a question answer period, someone said, well, will you tell us about the five Buddha families? You know, very kind of tantric kind of symbolism. Mm-hmm. And he said, oh, I don't know anything about that. But then he gave this wonderful answer on emptiness and wisdom, uh, which is what those five Buddha families are. That's exactly what they are. Right. But this person was all into the, uh, you know, classification. The, what, what, yeah. yeah, classification. What kind of crown were they wearing? All this kind <laughs> of stuff, which, you know, is helpful if your motivation is I want to help beings. Dalai Lama says the purpose of the Tantra is that it's a very direct, powerful path, but it's only because it's not to enlighten yourself. It's because your desire to liberate beings is stronger than your desire to enlighten your, your enlightenment comes along with it, but it's the work for other beings that, that matters. So it's very profound and it has all sorts of protections because it's easily misled, especially with our Westerners who, you know, we, we're Americans. We're, we're, we're very dualistic, right? You know, we're going to do it. And then we're going to tell the Asians how they were doing it wrong for the last <laughs> 2,500 years. <laughs> well, well, and also we're really amazing. Well, the, and then also in, and you know, I, I wasn't a very experienced Vajrayana practitioner, although I practiced a bit. Um, I flunked Nundro, and that's when I went <laughs> ended up at Bright Dawn. And but uh, 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 and that's a story for another time. But it is actually it's actually ties back to our first uh, uh, story about things uh, coming to you despite yourself. Um, it yeah. uh, it was it was it in my, in my and I don't know if I've ever told you this personally, but it was um, it 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 was my practice of Nundro that led me to where I am now, I, I believe. Yeah, there you go. Um, yeah, yeah. I've always thought so because it was such a, there was such a cut for me. There was such uh-huh. a, oh, I can't do this anymore. <laughs> I just can't. Yeah. I got to run yeah. away. I don't know where I'm going, but I'm running away. <laughs> and, and, <laughs> and that's kind of what happened. And and then this this thing that was right in front of me all along popped up. And, and then I sort of found my path. But it wasn't that I... You know, it's you know how when you go through stages and then you leave a path, like your Zen stage, and then but when you revisit everything, you see how it's all part of you still. You know, it's all exactly right. You, you know, yeah. You, and and so I I've always called myself some kind of weird combination of 
Tibetan Zen Shin. I don't know if there. <laughs> I don't think there is such a thing, but um, but it's the it, it's the purity of the mind unfolding, manifesting. Yeah, and is because you had that purity of mind when you were doing Nundro, it led you to your path. Yeah, and I felt the same way, like you alluded to the Zen. I look at my time with Zen as completely positive, but a purification. I was just having to grind through yeah. all in, in my own style, all of my wrong understandings. And I couldn't <laughs> have done that without having to sit there in full Lotus screaming in pain and thinking I shouldn't move, you know, I mean, it's like, and doing it. Yeah, exactly. And, and doing it. Yeah. Uh, but we, we don't know We're there. There's really something that is, um, yeah, un, uncreated that's going on here. And yet we are that, I, I mean, it's, it's, it's truly, really wonderful. Uh, but when you know, oh, but I don't want to stop you. You were going on a good, good, good. Place All right, now. I'm just going to say that it's important. I think for especially for people maybe who have like a secular interest in Buddhism to, re- to realize there's only one Dharma. Yeah, there are all these different manifestations, and even in a place like Tibet where they actually the monks took power. You know, they had the governments, they had to <laughs> get food on the table and punish people, all these things. And there are all sorts of wild uh, sort of undharmic things that have happened. I mean, Tibetans are human beings. Right. And yet they have like we have this faith in Einstein and physics, say <laughs> the ordinary Tibetan peasant has that kind of faith in Dharma because their Thomas Jefferson was a monk. Their great figures were monks. Yeah. And it's a remarkable thing that they've done, if you think about it, because, you know, like they didn't. The Sanskrit, the mantras are all in Sanskrit. They didn't put them into Tibetan. And to really take over without trying to fix it, you know, another culture, they took all that stuff from India and, and you know, they adapted it, obviously, to the Tibetan style and mind, but they didn't monkey with it. You see right. these teachings from a thousand years ago, and there it is. They're being very, that's what's so impressive about the scholars that they have, because they're trying to present the Dharma as the Dharma should be presented and not, you know, there's a danger of charisma always, yeah. especially great teachers. They have great charisma. People can get lost on the charisma, and but it's always about the meaning and the understanding. You know, all like the Buddha said, my teachings are a finger pointing at the mm-hmm. moon. Don't mistake the finger for the moon. And that's what people do. You know, should there be one finger pointing, two fingers pointing, <laughs> then they get in a fight. <laughs> that, that, that is so, that's so true. You, you know, and, but the, when when it comes to like what you talked about, like explaining the Vajrayana, which you did explain very well, I think though, even if somebody hasn't even had any experience with that visualization practice or those empowerments, yeah. they would pr- probably not even get what we're saying, but um, unless they've, ex- uh, you know, ex- uh, studied it or explored it a little bit. But I, re- I remember when I first uh, came to, to the Dharma Center and asked you, you know, if everything is empty and we're supposed to start seeing everything is empty, why are we creating these grand, <laughs> grand imaginary <laughs> things? You know, <laughs> that, that, that was the thing that, Traditional. that bothered yeah, me yeah, so yeah. much. That's a good question. <laughs> yeah. So, no, it's a very good question. So answer it for us. So I, th- well, <laughs> I, I learned from you, so I'll let you answer. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. The power of the the visualization practice, they're extremely skillful. They're actually taking you through each step in the uh, death and rebirth process. So you've practiced this in your mind. So then when you die, you, you know what you're doing already. But basically think about it. It starts with, these practices start with 
it's like a symphony or something. It starts with uh, taking refuge in the Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha, mm -hmm. then, um, which is that vow not to harm and to benefit all in the Mahayana. And then you uh, generate the four immeasurables of you know, vast loving kindness, compassion, equanimity, or spontaneous joy in the virtues of others mm -hmm. and the great Buddhas and Bodhisattvas. So you do that. And then what happens? You say a mantra and you drop your attachment to ordinary appearances. And then out of that emptiness arises the seed syllable of that particular Buddha. All these Buddhas have the same essence. It doesn't make any difference. But you have this, you are that seed syllable. So then we go through this elaborate creation <laughs> where, you know, light goes to the Buddhas, light comes back to the seed syllable, which you are. You know, light goes out to all the sentient beings, blessing them. Light comes back and you transform, you become that actual Buddha in the midst of this palace that's all made of light and is beautiful. All the, and then we go through all these things, active things with your mind. But at the end, what do we do? We, dissolve. we dissolve that visualization to prevent attachment even to any kind of form. And uh, because we created it in the first place, you know, we were also giving up our attachment to emptiness itself. So yeah. in, in the end, we give the dedication, we, we give it all back to everybody. Um, and it's extremely skillful, but you have to know what you're doing. And the, the better way, I think, is, um, you know, it comes through contact with qualified teachers. Right. That's why, for instance, at, at, at White Lotus, I, myself, I mean, we now have a Kempo in residence, Kempo Konchug Monlam, and this is so wonderful. And we have, you know, qualified lamas come and they'll give the empowerments and, and all of that. But we don't do that ourselves there because it, it's so simple. It's so down to earth. And yet there'd be very elaborate methods. But again, they're just fingers pointing at the moon. So if you listen to a great teacher such as, you know, His Eminence Garchin Rinpoche, his teachings are total emptiness, but they're totally about the afflictions. Right. And you have to know the, the meaning. And again, it's all about uh, seeing the nature of these afflictions in our mind. And then to see how the example that's given, for instance, when they talk about the path of renunciation, conventional Mahayana, the extraordinary Mahayana, the Vajrayana, they give the example of um, it's like um, someone you're walking through a, a, a forest of poisonous trees and the self-liberation way is to take out this heavy, sharp axe. It's heavy because that's the um, power of concentration. It's sharp because that's insight meditation, Vipassana. Right. And you're chopping at the root of the tree. And so that poisonous tree falls over. And that's the path of uh, renunciation, the path of self liberation. The poisons don't come up anymore. Poisons being our afflicted negative mind states that cause up, up, upset us. Um, so that's, that's a type of practice. It's said at that type of practice that a male form is actually more conducive to practicing that. Females can accomplish that too, but the male form said for whatever reasons um, is a little bit helpful. Then the conventional Mahayana, you're walking through the same poisonous forest, but now you take a little bit of the poisonous fruit as an antidote. It's kind of like homeopathy. Right. So when you see the poison of hatred arise in your mind, you, you know from your studies that the antidote is patience. So you take you use that arising of ang anger in the mind as a stimulus to practice the antidote, which is patience. Very safe. Comes to full Buddhahood. At this level, um, 
male, female doesn't make any difference. Mm -hmm. Then the Vajrayana, you're walking through the same poisonous forest, but now you take that poisonous fruit and take a big bite out of it. (laughs) I mean, this seems insane to the ordinary dualistic viewpoint. Has to be protected by empowerment, by Samaya's vows with a particular teacher and lineage, all these protections that are there. But at that form, that also goes to Buddhahood because the motivation is the benefit of all. That's the training of the mind. But at that level, the female form is actually superior to the male. Um, again, men can accomplish men. I believe my own teacher, Garchan Rinpoche, His Holiness Chetsang Rinpoche, His Holiness Dalai Lama, I believe they're fully realized people and they have used uh, those methods. But there's nothing in contradiction to the conventional Mahayana, the path of the perfections. Well, now, you can hear people, I hear people say, having problems here, right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Yes. Okay. I had problems myself. Okay, exactly. You, you, <laughs> can, you can hear people having problems. So, uh, and the, you know what the problems are. It's like, it takes these fully realized beings like, you know, His Eminence Garchin Rinpoche and and so on and so forth to and the protection of the Semayas and, you know, it's those empowerment things that people are saying, well, but what's that? You know, what? Right. Right. And that and that that sort of seems like that's the sort of magic stuff that people have a. Um, uh, and I don't know if it's just in the West. I think it could be in the East too. People have a, even in the way our, both cultures have merged, you know, these days. Yeah. Um, it, it's probably both, but that, that there's a, there's a, there's a rejection of that notion that you yes. need that or that that is somehow, um, important. So does that, does that kind of thing, and I'm not, I'm not talking about the age of Mapo or anything, but is that kind of thing saying, yeah. are we saying that, you know, how can Vajrayana continue in a culture that's becoming the way our mixed culture is when there's those, yeah. do you, you get my point or am I going too far? Yes. <laughs> the whole thing is about the training of the mind and it isn't necessary that anything continue. Like the Dalai Lama said, I might be the last Dalai Lama. Yeah. He said that. Uh, yeah. If it's not benefiting people, I'm not going to take rebirth. So it's all about the training and my own, I was not attracted to visualization at all. But it was only because a teacher that I really had very kind of deep confidence in um, that he said, why don't you do this? And I said, OK, I'll do it. I mean, I didn't didn't want to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> right. So the important thing is, is that the lotus of your mind opens up naturally. We can't rip open the, <laughs> the, the bud, bud right. and think that we're getting somewhere. That was my previous sort of self-power idea. <laughs> right. You can't do that. And so you don't have to worry about any of those things. The practice will arrive. It's, rather, it's the, this fundamental confidence in that the, the Buddha was not mistaken. And you can see the results of 2,500 years of, the, I mean, think about it. I mean, it's just so amazing to me how people get lost and miscommunications are so tremendous. <laughs> and then when you see different cultures that somehow these teachings have transformed positively wildly different cultures. I mean, India and China, it, it's like, yeah, good you point. know, in, in it, yeah, you know, in India, you'll have like a certain Buddhist concept, like a paragraph of this beautiful, like poetic prose. But in Chinese Buddhism, the same thing as one little pithy phrase. Right, uh-huh. right. So 
wildly different. I'm told that Sanskrit has the most highly developed grammar of any language, and Chinese basically has no grammar. <laughs> I mean, it's like, and yet they, they've both been transformed. Yeah. So the important thing is that confidence when the Buddha says that we have Buddha nature, that the nature of our mind is not subject to birth and death, and that this can be realized. And the way to realize it is by fitting others. It's just so mind-boggling and radical. Can it actually be true? But the important thing is, is that you can practice that, oh, and then you see. Yeah, and that's true. But so, are so like what you're saying is like uh, what I'm saying. What what my first question was is like like could Vajrayana, the practice of Vajrayana, particularly kind of disappear? I know there's still Tibetan centers everywhere. I don't know if there are as many as there were like ten years ago, or there's more. I I don't. I haven't really followed sort of the the yeah. trend if there is one yeah. um yeah but i'm wondering since some of the great some of the teachers who came over here first you know and started spreading the teachers have started declaring you know buddhism without beliefs like stephen bachelor and stuff is yeah. there a trend now away from this very sort of thing I don't know about trends, but I, I do know I, I'm impressed by the people that I see around, you know, say, say Gartner Bache is an example, the, the people that he's inspired and, and have practiced with him, something very solid and very good. And whether something continues or not, I don't know. Uh, I don't find myself following Stephen Batchelor. Right. Um, uh, I would recommend more Zongsar Kensei. Yeah, um, yeah. You know, so his movies or his most recent book, I don't know if it's his most recent one. My daughter gave it to me for Christmas, which I really liked. It says, the guru drinks bourbon, question mark. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> I, I, uh, that's on my wish list, actually. So, <laughs> yeah. Well, it's very good because he is totally modern. Um, I, I, think, I think a realized teacher, but he's really so cognizant of the West. And the difficulties, you know, he's very critical of Tibetan lamas who are just, um, you know, for whatever reason, um, um, uh, I don't know, are, are too narrow in their interests in that. Mm -hmm. And but he, but he, and he, but he, what I like is that he directs the very kind of questions that you're having here. Mm -hmm. You know, these kinds of things that appeal to someone like Guru Yoga, we want to run in the other direction. Right. Um, my point is, is that you don't have to do any of that stuff. That that all happens naturally, or it doesn't. It doesn't matter. Okay. It's not the only. It's not the only way to Buddhahood. And if people are benefiting by having some, if they just take the vow, to, I, I want to start stop harming people. Right. Even if they don't believe in karma, that that's going to be a benefit to them. What happens? You're you're immediately in less trouble. Yeah. If you're not harming other people, there isn't all this kickback coming out at you, blowback all the time. So yeah, Buddhism again is just completely practical. And it's beneficial in this life. The odd thing about it is that I really think someone who has a what might be called a more transcendent view actually has a better life in this lifetime. And whether we understand how that works or not, we, we, we need to understand it. We want to understand. But even we don't, we get the benefit. It's like they say, if you practice bodhicitta, your life will improve. You're, you will come to Buddhahood eventually. It's like if you jump off a cliff, you're going to fall down, even if you don't believe in in in, in gravity. <laughs> well, yeah, exactly, and I think that's absolutely true. And I've I've seen it with people who've who've practiced just practice basic 
you know, just basic Mahayana principles uh, or, or, or started, or started putting, you know, doing uh, the four measurables or, or just one, you know, simple little thing every day. Right. Um, yes. Uh, yes. And, and I, and I've seen the, the big change, you know, in them or um, in, and I, or people who take up, even though, uh, mindfulness is all the buzz, although I tend to, to, to refer to it as, as Mick mindfulness. There is a, <laughs> there is mind, there is a benefit to mindfulness, but also it, it needs to be founded on for the benefit of all beings. It needs to be founded on the, the, the doing good for others that, that, that Bodhisattva vow, the, the sense of Bodhicitta. And I think people come to that all naturally if they start doing some of these practices, that's the interesting phenomena I have found. Even if that was not their intention, it happens. Do you, yes, do you see what I mean? Yes. And that's a very important point because there are all sorts of bad experiences. There's one written about right now in the, um, oh, I can't remember. I think it's in the Atlantic or the Guardian or the New Yorker maybe this month about somebody who went to a Vipassana retreat and had some sort of psychotic breakdown. Oh, yeah. I, I read a little snippet about that. I didn't read the whole article. Yes. I mean, we're dealing with a human mind, which according to the Buddhists is the most powerful thing in the universe and all the universes that we don't even see. So this has been worked out. I mean, if <laughs> you just launch into things, you know, I had one person come to the Dharma Center once and said, gee, can I, you know, I, I want to meditate. And I said, why do you want to do that? And he says, well, I, I want to be able to sleep less so I can work more. <laughs> and I said, well, you know, meditation, you can do that. I'm told that you can get by with less sleep, but the amount of effort you have to put into it to get that kind of result, you know, you don't want to do it. You're not going to do it. Right. Uh, the motivation is so important. Um, and uh, also, I mean, again, training the mind. It's about discovering what's real instead of living in our dream of ourself all the time and living in our, 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 our self-created dramas and the castles in the sky, which always fall apart because they're based on delusion. And so to do the simplest practice, like just someone came to Lama Govinda once, the German man who has passed away now, wrote away the white clouds. He was living in India and some Western seeker like the late 60s came to him and said, I want to come to enlightenment. He says, it's very good. Why don't you start with kindness? <laughs> There's stuff that we can all do. Right. Uh, that's where you want to be. Not worry about the sort of the attraction of the higher teachings and all of that. It's very seductive. Yeah. It's very seductive. Yeah. And it, but if you don't have a teacher who's pulling the rug out from underneath you and sh showing you and keeping you humble all the time, uh, it can it can be dangerous. Yeah, that's, I think that's, the, that's, and I think that's the case with all sort of like spiritual and religious and, you know, like you said, it's made, it can be made up of charlatans. And if you find an authentic teacher who, um, like I always talk about my sensei, um, he has this sort of uh, incestuous way of teaching. You don't, you haven't even clue that he's teaching. He's just joking with yeah. you and doing this and that. Yeah. Next, <laughs> next, yeah, hang up the phone or whatever, and then you think, oh man, he just gave me a shot. <laughs> <laughs> That's right, exactly. I, I have no idea and well i better be working on this but you know it's like um i think that's that's the way i think 
the, the, the way it is. And when people do come to it, it's like they always come to it with these, these grandiose notions of whatever, enlightenment. Well, right. It's always enlightenment, really. Why should I say whatever? It's, isn't it always enlightenment <laughs> that they, they want? Yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> and, and, and the, you know, sometimes, and I, my thing in this whole everyday Buddhism concept that I've launched is, you know, enlightenment is really just seeing things as they are. It's shining a light on it. That's it. That's what it. That's right. That's what. That's what it is. And most of us, really, that's when they say, "I want enlightenment." That's not really what they want. They don't want you to shine. Right. <laughs> that, that's, that's, if, oh, right. that's not what they want. They'd be like saying, "No, no, no." That's not what they want. I had this. Um, t- the Al Bloom. That's who I was going to talk to you about before. Doctor yeah. Al Bloom. Yeah. The great Shin yeah. teacher and, and yeah. doctor. Um, he taught our, our, my lay ministry class, and uh, this, uh-huh. uh, and and he 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 set he set off a a real uh, just like you had you know these experiences where wow you got it all in like a second. He set off this thing for me um, about getting other power um, because I just I could not get pay. It was like a grease pig for me. I could not get past the the concept of the deity, the God, the whatever, uh-huh. just could not, right. I couldn't make that leap. Um, and, right. and then he told a story once to our class about there was a woodpecker and he was on a tree in a forest where there were loggers, right? Um, <clears throat> uh-huh. And he was, you might have heard the story, and he's pecking away, pecking away. And he doesn't know, he's so busy pecking away, he doesn't know that the loggers <laughs> have come to his tree, right? And they're down at the base of the tree, and all of a sudden he whacks one whack, good peck on the tree, and the whole tree falls over. And he says, whoa, I did that? <laughs> so you know the that's the, it. <laughs> the teachings and the traditions are protection. I mean, even taking refuge means to seek protection. You know, protection from from sufferings and the stupid things we do. We're all looking for happiness, <laughs> right. but we're all creating the seeds of suffering. I mean, you know, over and over and over and over again. But I find these these traditional teachings so beneficial. There's one from the Chinese Pure Land of Shantao. I think he's one of the patriarchs. Shantao, yes. Uh, yes, and he had this. I, I don't know if it was a dream or what, but I've always found it so meaningful. I mean, he, he's talking about um, walking through a forest, you know, with dangerous animals and bandits, mm-hmm. and these are our afflictions and uh, just our, our wrong view of things. And so what do you do? People see they come to a river and there's this thin river going a thin ribbon going across the river and Buddha Amitabha's on the other side. So you want to go there, but the ribbon is scary. This little thin ribbon and on one side of the ribbon the, there's total flames. It's the path of fire. And on the other yeah, side right. yeah, curling waters, I'm gonna drown. And yet Buddha Shakyamuni, the historical Buddha, is behind saying, No, no, go. You'll be all right. Yeah. And as you walk, it gets wider and wider and wider because Amitabha's compassion, you you know, you get there. So it seemed to me that, you know, the practice of like self-power and that is in that forest with the historical Buddha. In the Amitabha Sutra, you know, uh, uh, Amitabha praises the Buddha Shakyamuni, the historical Buddha, because he came to enlightenment in this deceptive world. Right. Where nothing is conducive. Right. So... We've got Buddha Shakyamuni there. Amitabha's on the other side. Walking on that river, that's the path of, of faith, which is necessary. 
I don't know if this is right, but I've always thought of the visualizations and practicing in the pure land, which is what the visualizations are, as, you know, sort of thinking you're on the other side of the river already and dancing around with Buddha Amitabha. <laughs> I don't know if that's right, but it's kind of the, the framework that, that that's occurred to me. But in the end, it comes down to looking at your own mind, recognizing the afflictions that come up, applying the antidote to them. And then in the gap between the spaces, you know, that's where the, the vastness is. Yeah. And to, to abide, to train your mind in that place where we're not this and that, right and wrong, a Buddhist, non-Buddhist, uh, all of those, the whole realm of desire. Yeah. And I think all Buddhist traditions, you know, recognize that. And they give different methods of practicing it, training the mind in, in what we have already. Uh, so it's it's totally wonderful. It it is, and isn't that a great place to stop? Do you think this is a great place? Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> thank you. Yeah. Uh, so so um, thank you so much, Frank. You know, I think you did uh, help um, take the edge off for some people. I, I think I felt uh-huh. it. Uh, you know, take the edge off the the sense of the sort of strangeness of Tibetan Buddhism. <laughs> yes. I think those who have uh, who have any familiarity with any sort of Mahayana Buddhist traditions would feel very comfortable. But you know, oh, good. N- not any not every center is has a has a Frank, so we don't know no. <laughs> <laughs> to make it to make it do that. But I think if you spend enough time, you you would you would find yourself at home, and and e- even the wrathful demons on the walls won't scare you, right? <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> the wrathful right. Buddhas and Bodhisattvas. Um, That's right. So thank you so much for being a part of it, uh, Frank. I I really appreciate your time today. Oh, thank you, Wendy. I'm so happy with what you're doing. Well, I hope you enjoyed today's episode with Frank. Uh, it, it was I. It was a joy for me. I, I miss his teaching, so I hope you felt the same way. Um, and that's it for today's episode. Thank you for joining me as always. Thanks to everyone who listens to the podcast, comments on my website or the new public Facebook group, And of course, those who donate to help keep the content written, produced, and distributed. If I haven't replied to any of your messages yet, I will. I always try to reach out with a private email of thanks, but be patient because as I continue to say, uh, the numbers are growing and they continue to grow each episode. And because of that, as I mentioned uh, last episode, I launched a new Dharma to Go forum uh, that for a small donation, you will be guaranteed a timely and personal answer to your question. Dharma to Go can be found at dharmatogo.com or through the Dharma to Go tab on my website. Additionally, I'm looking for more ways to offer valuable extras for the extras for the growing community around the podcast. So please consider supporting my work through a recurring or one-time donation through the donate tab on my website, everydaybuddhism.com. And don't hesitate to share this podcast with friends and family members. And of course, rate review and all those good things. Um, So until next time, keep making your everydays better. (laughs) 